Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is composer Frank Ilfman. On this episode, Frank and I go pretty far in-depth into his score for the new film Gunpowder Milkshake. Frank's score is a really cool mix of more traditional action cues with spaghetti western noir influences as well as just a general tone of 60s, 70s, American, Italian, French stylings, which is just a fascinating choice for this modern, kind of timeless action film. A Gunpowder Milkshake is on Netflix in the US and actually just released in the UK on Netflix this past weekend. So give the score a listen, it's available on every platform, and check the movie out. One of the highlights as well is near the end of the interview, we talk about one of the impetuses for Frank's entry into film music, which was meeting the German composer Klaus Doldinger when he was about 14 years old. Klaus was actually recording the score for The Neverending Story. I mean, what a hell of an experience at that age, well, at any age. You can find Frank on his website or on social media, and of course you can do the same for me as well. I'll actually be releasing another episode next week. Again, I found myself in a position of having just too many interviews saved up, and I want to start getting them out the door. This one is with a very exciting guest, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you do, remember to subscribe on whatever your platform of choice is, leave a review, and uh, I don't know, tell the world about it. Now, sit back and enjoy. Frank, I'm so glad you could join me today. How have you been? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I know you've been busy with Gunpowder Milkshake releasing on Netflix in the U.S. about two, three months ago, and then coming out in the U.K. in mid-September. Yeah, on the 17th of September. Yeah, so beyond that, have you been keeping yourself busy, or with that done, have you been uh, taking some time and just relaxing? No, we kind of... When did we finish that? We finished it fairly close to to when it got released due to like all the COVID and recordings and when we were able to record and stuff. So, and I've been working for years, so I took a bit of time off, but I have a, my own kind of personal album that I've been kind of stacking away from time to time when I could dip into it. So it's kind of like, okay, there's a bit of a break now before I start to film and, and it's like, okay, I can do that now. And it was just also trying to re-rig the studio with all the synth and stuff. Because everything when we worked on gunpowder was just a bit of a mess. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a free time to try and kind of get before things starts to pile up again in a month time. So not much of a break. I feel like that's always the case with composers. You've you're getting run into the ground on a project, but then when the project ends, you just can't wait to get on the next one. Well, well, that's the thing. It's it's you know we're kind of freelancing, so most of us i think nobody says kind of know when you have a gig coming in and such even the the one that you think is a small gig you ended up it being a big gig because you then you invest a lot of time and you got to do this and then things changes and evolve so it's it's always like no matter what you do you always kind of find yourself busy or you try to find yourself busy you know so either you write for a film or a tv show or anything like that or or then you kind of finally try and do something for yourself which I always kind of find that I write mostly for films and TV and you barely kind of have time for yourself. The last thing you want to do is be back in the studio writing. 
So it's when you have a bit of a break and you think, okay, you know, I got a, a bit of free time. Oh, let me experiment with this. Or how about I'll, I'll try and do that. So that's where you kind of start to do something for yourself more than get a commission kind of a thing. So yeah, it's a bit of a break is always nice, but yeah, we're always keeping busy. <laughs> I do want to get to gunpowder in a second, but before that, what can you tell us about the personal music that you're working on that album? Is that really coalescing into something or is that right now just you kind of noodling around working on things that are for yourself? No, I think I started it like maybe about, I think maybe it was about two years ago. And it, it's it's very much, I mean, the same sort of vein of stuff that I write, which is always a bit of that kind of melancholic kind of stuff. So it's it's featured some of the pieces I managed to record already with an orchestra or more of a string and winds. And then it's it's piano and electronics mostly. So it's similar pieces. I haven't kind of reached a point where I'm saying, okay, this is like a concept album or, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. It's just kind of writing certain melodies and certain uh, tunes that I thought, oh, that works with that and this works with this and you know, I'll go with it and see. And then when I kind of started like thinking, oh, actually those pieces, they were written separately. They weren't like written for an album. But as I kind of listened to them, uh, it kind of made sense of, oh, maybe I should put it out as an album because it's not associated with any film or anything. And they they have a sort of similarity going between them. So it's it just made more sense to say, oh, you know what? Okay, maybe I'll do an album. But then every time you're thinking, okay, I'm just going to sit down and write these pieces out. And then, oh, I got this idea and I'll write that out. Something pops in. So Gunpowder came in right when I was like, okay, I have the free time to just concentrate <laughs> on the album. And that kind of took me for a year. So I literally worked on Gunpowder more, more or less for, for a year because it went through the whole lockdown. And we just kind of had in a way, everything stopped. It's like, you know, the whole world kind of stopped, but actually we were still working on that. So, you know, we had a lot of time to experiment with Gunpowder and kind of shape it to really the place we wanted to take it i think originally we were supposed to go into recording within two months and then the whole pandemic starts and everything kind of locked down and shut so that kind of you know started to stretch and we were they were editing through the lockdown and while they were editing and reshaping the film i started the scoring stage but then everything kind of kept on prolonging so we ended up literally working on it for a year non-stop yeah Jeez. like avatar seven <laughs> See, that's crazy because so often composers will have six weeks, eight, ten weeks to work on something. What was the approach? Did you hit a point where you realized, oh, we've got an extra year to work on this? Or was it a month would go by and you'd think, okay, we're going to record and get this locked in a month. And then it would kind of keep pushing off incrementally like that. Yeah, it was it was more of the later. I think the idea was I kind of I went on set was November when they were still filming in Berlin. And I went on set and then uh, they broke for Christmas and New Year. And then I think I started around February or something like that initially. I mean, I've done some sketches and some rough ideas where stuff were played for the actors during filming and so on. But the bulk of the work kind of started around end of January, early Feb. And the idea was that we, I think we were looking to record around April. So I would say it's probably about two months more or less to get everything done. But then March came and we were literally, we started to look at recording dates and started to secure, you know, like a, a bit of recording dates and things like that. And then boom, the whole thing kind of started and then like, okay, everything stopped. Okay, everything got canceled. And we were not sure 
are we going to record or not? Everything kind of stopped. So we just said, well, you know what? There's no point to record at the moment and uh, postpone everything and, you know, just keep on working and see how we do. So it kind of turned from just a normal kind of six weeks period into like 12 months period. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. You know. One of the things that I was curious about is at what point did you decide on the the style and the sound of your score because it's it is very distinct it's you have uh, very much a modern influence sort of like spaghetti western and broader like 60s 70s feeling and you know there's a lot of italian influence in there so i mean how did you land on that kind of palette those kind of ideas i think they kind of started that like Nevo, the director, is very musical oriented when he works. So he will already, he's going to listen to stuff while he writes the scripts. So he kind of started listening, you know, to the usual suspect, like Ennio Morricone and, and uh, Silvio Capriani and all these kind of Italian influences and stuff. And we'll kind of start generating a playlist of cues from films and songs while he was writing. And then, you know, we'll chat up and he'll say, this is what I think the influences are. And I'll say, okay, great. Have you heard this score by Capriani? Have you heard this one by, you know, Henry Mancini or John Barry? Or, you know, I'll start throwing other elements into it. And we'll start compiling this kind of huge playlist. And, um, you know, as he will shape the script and then start filming, that playlist will get more and more kind of shaped towards the film. And then, you know, I remember we were, you know, I came to Berlin to see the set and the actors and, and you know, what's working and such. And we were driving in the car and stuff and, you know, we'll play the songs through that and we'll go for lunch and we'll pull our iPhone and we're like, have you heard this cue? What if you mean? I think that could be a good direction for this and that. And that's how we kind of started thinking of all these ideas. And a lot of it was like, how do we do, you know, on one side, we do Singing in the Rain, Akira Kawasawa, and we do Alfred Hitchcock, Bernard Herrmann and Sergio Leone and, you know, Morricone and all these kind of stuff. How do we shape them into something that will have its own character, but for the film and create this kind of an homage to all these films that we love, but without kind of taking the piss and saying it's a spoof about, you know what I mean? Which is what sometimes a lot of those things are. And we didn't want it. It's not a spoof. So, but we wanted to have those influences, but still have those I would say it's like a unique, another character in the film, which is the music, because it's so, um, you know, you can't escape the music in the film when the vote works, you know, in any of the films, if it was Rabies, Big Bad Wolf, the music is always another character, and that's what's the case here. And that, I think, was the main, the main challenge of to try and do, is to try and get those elements and still make it kind of original. I would say that's the only positive thing with having the lockdown and the pandemic that we had the time to, to kind of play around with all those kind of things. I mean, it, it drove the producer mad because it's like, why is it taking so long for us to hear something? So they had the main theme and they heard like the main thing, which is what's opening the film. And they were like, great, we love it. We love the theme. Everything's great. But why is it taking so long to see cues? And, you know, that was the thing. Another point was, how do we do cues that are written to picture by frame but they're going to feel like needle drops in the film without editing the film to the music which what you would normally do but the idea here because they were so progressing and then they stopped and there was no editor to come in and, and do it the idea was do a needle drop but match it to the film so that's another challenge to make those cues feeling like it's just a track that somebody put in and it worked great, but actually it was written to picture. That last point is something that kind of really struck me because there are a few moments in the film where I'm I'm listening and I, I think I'm like 80% sure that this is 
an original cue, but there's something in the back of my head that's not sure that thinks, oh, maybe this is a song from somewhere else, or you know, maybe this is a cue from a score. 50 years ago that they've just placed in. So it's, it is really interesting that you say that because they do actually feel like a weird version of a needle drop. I mean, what was your approach in actually crafting something like that? Because it is, I think, a bit unusual for to do in a film score. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, is some of the, like when I watch some of the scenes, they kind of played out like a video clip within a movie. So if it's the, the gutterable falling scene or if it's uh, the clinic fight, even the kind of big action cues at the end. So the idea was, you know, we tried a lot of stuff in and even the clinic scene, uh, which we kind of used the mariachi thing at the end, that was actually scored as a normal action cue. But then we kind of lost a bit of that comedy that that scene had in a way. And um, I think the first one that we tackle, I think was the bowling alley. And, um, you know, we had the, the whole standoff before, which is one cue. And that was like that kind of spaghetti Western feel to it already. So my approach was because I come from, from a rock kind of electronic background. So for me, the, I said, okay, so how about, you know, we do them as a, as a track. And then once it's, we kind of have the basics, then I can start metering it and kind of shape it a bit with the, with the tempo changes and stuff. But the idea was to build it as a, you know, like a, A, B, A, B, A, B, C kind of, you know, just as, a, as you write a song. So those cues were written literally like that. And then once I had the structure and we were like great with the melody and the, it's like a verse course kind of a thing, we we're all happy with that. The idea was then, then to match it somehow to the picture. And that I think worked just as Nabot wanted to have those kind of needle drop feel to it. And it matches with the clip that the, the hard part was like, yeah, to try and kind of match those to the picture, but still so the audience doesn't feel it feels weird that there is a two bar and it goes into a five bar or a six, eight, and those kind of feeling and the tempo is changing a bit too much. So those was the hard part to kind of do, but we had, you know, great players and, and Alex on drums that, that like some of the breaks are two, four and three, four, and he kind of matched those. I like those players to more improvise and bring stuff, you know, that they can do in their own field. And me writing down or Jeff, my orchestrator, writing down, you know, all these kind of notation for the drummer. That's what you need to play. You know, this is the guide. So, but they're, they've done brilliantly. So yeah. And it, and it just feels like a track and not as a, another cue within the film. Yeah. But I think it also works to give a lot of those sequences, their own character, the bowling alley sequence and the clinic fight probably the one, the two that stand out the most for me in that, because both the action sequences themselves are, they're unique set pieces, but the music as well really adds to that. And you mentioned this where the original take on the clinic fight sounded a little more just straightforward action. He took a little of the comedy out. And I'm really glad you had that extra time because it is such a goofy fight scene. It's kind of silly. And the music adds to that too. And that's something that I was curious about is how do you find the balance between leaning into the comedy of a scene versus having a little more serious because you know at the end of the day like it's also people that are getting shot and stabbed and killed and all that too some of the scenes when you do look at it i mean first of all gunpowder in a way is is bigger than life kind of a film some people you know a lot of people kind of compare it to either john wick or you know or these type of worlds and but actually it's it's not really the only kind of scene that's 
kind of reminiscent, you know, a bit of that neon light is only the, the bowling alley. Lead wall that's in the back, that's as far as it is. A lot of the film is very kind of neo, you know, it's a film noir kind of 60s feel to it. And a lot of these scenes, uh, when you look at them, they're kind of bigger than life. It'd be like watching like a comic film, you know, it's like a Marvel or something like that. Yeah, the clinic scene is the last one we actually recorded and, and it's the last one I scored because I think the original cue that I wrote uh, was more very similar to the monster one, which had like all these kind of 60 surf guitars and it has those riffs. And uh, it was more action oriented. It had a bit of the comedy, but it wasn't, it just get it just made it more serious and that whole scene where she's paralyzed and how the goons are you know they're it just it's just so ridiculous and it but it just made it serious in a sense that it just felt that we're not getting the comedy or the kind of like that we're kind of saying to the audience it's not real you know what i mean this is those things they're not happening there's no such things in the original cue you know it had that kind of surf guitars and then it went into this kind of swing jazzy a bit of that kind of Lalo Schifrin 70s feel to it and, and some of the points with all these kind of congas and drums and stuff. And it had a bit of that, but it wasn't really kind of kicking it. And then we had a lot of test screenings for the film. And, you know, we noticed that that didn't get us enough of that kind of kick that we wanted. Everybody loved the cue. I mean, the cue was working. Nobody said it doesn't work. But we, you know, like me and Evod, we felt that we can maybe try and push it a bit more and thinking, okay, we, we got the whole score. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of left field. There's a lot of stuff that's mainstream and it's, you know, it's what you want in an action cue or this and that. But let's kind of try and take it out completely. And we thought, well, yeah, you know what? Mariachi band. Mariachi band and a Baroque orchestra. That will do the trick. And we, as we were playing and stuff, I started to think mariachi band, you know, da -da -da, sombrero. Eh, let's shout sombrero at the end of the queue, you know, when the guy got his head splashed and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we got a choir there, you know, and, and me and some other people, you know, shouting sombrero and uh, the whole thing. And it just it just became this cue that's like completely out of proportion, you know. And it worked a lot of the, I think from a lot of the fight scene in the film, but what people I think remember is actually that clinic scene. Even the one that hates the film, I mean, this film, either you like it or you hate it, but even the one who hates the film kind of love the clinic fight scene because that's like the one that's like, it's just so out of proportion, but you get the idea of it, you know, and it works great. And it still has that kind of Baroque feel with the harpsichords, but then it has all this kind of crazy Mexican shouting there, you know, so it, it worked well. But again, that's the thing that when you have a bit more time and then, you know, they allow you to push it a bit more to let's do, you know, we got that. So that's covered. But what if we do another take of that and go completely left field? So you don't expect it to, you know, to come because just before that, you know, you have like quite a long queue, which also is like crazy meterings, like 13.8. It has that kind of bit of comedy, but it has that kind of normal action feel to it. And then it kind of ends and then it starts with that crazy stuff that you don't expect so yeah when you got a bit of extra time that's what you spend it on <laughs> yeah you know with that extra time though do you ever get worried that you're gonna take things too far and just experiment too much or go too crazy and and make things a little worse off um no i mean i mean if you have the extra time i mean it depends on on directors you work with you know some were, were very specific and you know they love what you do and it's there and you know, I've done certain things that I've added all these kind of dissonance sometimes, and I like to put certain weird stuff. Sometimes it's like small details. And then I'll always kind of 
give it as a separate stem or when we mix, you know, I always say to, to Casey, my engineer, just put a separate stem. If they don't like it, they can take it out, you know, or, okay, they don't like it. We love it. Well, keep it for the album, you know, it'll be the album version. With Navot, you know, Navot is very open-minded, you know, when he likes certain things, he loves it. We'll, we'll go very mainstream. And then sometimes we'll have moments where it goes, you know, we need to go over the top. So like, like the milkshake scene at the beginning of the of the film between um, Scarlett and Sam, it's a mother and daughter. But our big milkshake moment, it could have been the the big climax of Casablanca in that sense. It's so grandeur and like it's so romantic, and it you know you would not really associate it with a mother and daughter moment. But that's like our Disney big fall in love moment, you know, and we went and it works really well, even though you would think, oh, maybe, you know, it's a bit too romantic, but actually it does, you know, it makes this connection. So yeah, a lot of it depends on, you know, who's the director and how much they are kind of willing to, to incorporate. And even when we did some of the stuff, we, we did have comments from the studio saying some of it sounds a bit too retro and we're afraid that it might be a bit too retro and not kind of modern or appealing to more of, you know, the younger crowd that loves all the kind of modern scorings. But then, you know, as we started adding more elements and more electronic stuff, they saw that that combination of a bit of the retro stuff and the electronics that started to come underneath. And it's not just the old school kind of orchestra and instruments. They go like, oh, wow, okay, that's a, that's a, oh yeah, we love that. That's a great colors and stuff. So again, you know, when they allow you to do that, it's the best part. Yeah, there's there's time when you think, oh, okay, maybe I've gone a bit too much, you know, like maybe it's a bit, uh, you know, too over the top. But then you always have a version that's a bit kind of subdued and it's great. And then, you know, you have a version which is like a bit over the top and you see, you know, you see what work. I've done, I've done a film which was, was quite a big success called Noodle back in, I guess, 2007. I worked with this director and she was really, she was really musical and she goes, why don't we do an end title song? And since it was a, a film about this Chinese kid who's been left behind and his parents been deported and this uh, stewardess who wants to then reunite the kid with his parents back in China. And so the director said, why don't we do a song? And I said, yeah, why don't we do a song that, you know, it's going to be sang in there, you know, in Mandarin. And we got this girl to write the lyrics in uh, Mandarin and, um, and we just went in, recorded, recorded the orchestra, recorded the song and stuff. And I remember in, in when we did the preview, the producer was like, we're there sitting saying, what the hell? What's the deal with the song? I mean, hey, it's in Chinese and stuff. And it's like, why, do, why are we doing it? It feels so out of context and stuff. And the director was saying, no, I love it. And it works great. And he left it. And actually, everybody loved the song at the end, you know. So, yeah, when they give you the opportunity and the director backs you up, then it's the best. Well, that, I mean, that's got to be such an important aspect because there are so many people working on a film and I don't think the, well, I think composers are important, but you don't necessarily have the biggest sway with the studio or the producers in trying to keep some of your changes. So that's got to be really nice when the director has your back 100% because yeah. suddenly the studio or producer pressure is alleviated a bit. And talking about the importance of directors, I know that you and Navot, the director, have worked on quite a few things over the years. How does that long-standing relationship help or change how you approach and how you score the film? Well, with him, I mean, with Navot and, you know, some other directors I work with, but especially Navot, we have a very... Navot is very musical, which is great. A lot of time, as I said, he will, you know, start compiling a list as he starts to write the script. 
we'll come up with ideas and and things to do and even now we're we're kind of like in super early stages on doing gunpowder too we already kind of started you know mumbling okay we know the themes we know what we have how do we do you know how we take it to 11 and we start you know okay we can go to this direction and we obviously can go to this direction we kind of started having that kind of language i think when we did big bad wolf because rabies was a was a rescue job for me they had some other composer doing it and i just kind of came quickly in so it was a you know within two weeks i've done rabies and it was great that then we moved on and then when gun and uh, sorry when big bad wolf came about that's kind of like when we we started kind of it would tempt the film with certain things. And I go, okay, I can see this. I can see where you're going with that. And it went, I think, on Big Bad Wolf, it went from something like The Dark Knight or something like that. And then it went to, you know, Die Hard from Michael Kamen. And it was a bit of E.T. there at some point. And it was a, it's a huge combination of cues that were just splattered all over. You know, so I saw what he was doing and I said, okay, I, I can see what you're doing here. But I think, yeah, this scene, you know, with the kind of Die Hard mo- movie music is... It's a bit too serious to what's on screen, but what if we do it this way, but then kind of try and make it a bit more comedic and stuff. And that's how we started to shape that kind of playlist. And that's how we kind of started on, uh, was the ABC of Death uh, segment. And then when it came to, came to Gunpowder, we already kind of established that thing. So when I know what will say, I'm thinking of doing this and doing this and doing this, and I go like, how the hell is that going to happen? But I said, okay, I can <laughs> see where you're going with it. All right, let me go to the lab, cook something up, and then we'll start doing that. So, so we have our, you know, we have our shortcuts kind of a thing with trying out things. And then what he will do a lot of times, he will just, you know, take my sketches and start putting them on the film and then sit with the music editor or he'll do it himself and kind of start putting them around and moving things and go, what if we do this and this? And I will go, I think this part works better here, but I can combine this with this part. It's almost like having a certain jigsaw that you kind of take, reshuffle and rebuild again. And it, it seems to work well. You know, Gunpowder, I think, is, is like a good, because that was like our kind of super big movie with so much music and so much influences in one film. It's always, I would say, it's always a certain journey with Navot, the way it works is we'll start with like our initial direction and we'll we'll go almost 180 sometimes, uh, which producer are not a big fan of because it's like, why we're going this and now we're going that. But it's a learning curve in a way. And then he needs to see that kind of journey or this kind of realization sometimes. And and as well, for me, it, it kind of makes certain things clear because I say, you know what, that's great. But you know, that thing that we did at the beginning, which was out of context with the film, actually, I think that will work here. So let's bring that in and then add our elements from where we are now. And And it works really well, you know, but again, sometimes you have the time for that and sometimes you don't, you know, when we, we'll see when we have, you know, just a month or two months to work, we'll hopefully that shortcut will be very quick and not a year. Let's see, luckily you have a crazy lead time right now with, uh, with the sequel. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I haven't started on that and I'm, you know, there's still time on that. They're just writing. So still very, very early days, but that's the thing, you know, this, uh, like when I worked on ghost stories, Andy and Jeremy, they're very, you know, music orientated and they knew exactly what they wanted. And we did, we done stuff. Once we had the themes, they were super hundred percent behind me. And I said, what if we go this direction and we do this crazy thing and we add this, you know, again, you know, it all depends if they give you the leeway, then you can just go and experiment and do research and certain things. And, uh, 
did the same you know the same thing when on the operative it was it was meant to be mostly a, an electronic score and then i said why don't we have this kind of huge brass and and string section just like mostly on the lower end and then you director said you know what yeah that sounds good and the studio said yeah we're willing okay let's go with that and then you know when they got to the mix then they kind of had a bit of a change of heart and they said let's push a bit more the electronic part and mute the orchestra but then you know just release it on the soundtrack so that's how it works you know so it depends you know sometimes the studio will just give you the notes and they'll say we want this we want that and it, it i think it depends how much leeway the director would have compared to the studio but yeah but when you have test screenings and and so many people and music editors and supervisor then yeah everybody will make a comment and then you think let's see what works best so with gunpowder i mean I'll guess that that's the biggest production, biggest studio film that you've worked on. Did it feel like there was more external influences, more people trying to give comments? And was that like an added level of pressure? And, and you know, you've mentioned test screenings a couple of times as well. Yeah, Gunpowder, I would say, is the biggest one because of the studio and so many kind of big producers involved and budget-wise as well. I mean, it's quite a huge budget. And um I mean, even Ghost Stories, Ghost Stories had a fairly big studio behind it, but they were very kind of, you know, they took a backseat. They weren't interfering, you know, they weren't interfering. And Ghost Stories, we had, I think, like maybe over 10 test screenings, but they never kind of made any comments about, you know, the score and anything. They were, they were like, yeah, we trust the directors, you know, we're happy with that. It's funny, like when you, you know, when you always speak to kind of young composers or that, everybody wants to do the big films and the big movies. But the thing is that, those big, big, big ones, especially, they have so much pressure and uh, people kind of relying on you. Usually it's like, it's going to be the summer this or the hit of that and this and that. And there's so much pressure that to deliver, you know, they'll either surround you with loads of people that will get it done. And they'll have backup composer doing, you know, ghostwriting and stuff like that. And, uh, and here, yeah, we had a lot of pressure from, from kind of like the, the studio and the, and the producer about, at first, they were they were like very unsure with the direction we want to take it. They're kind of like, why are we going to that kind of you know retro spaghetti western feel? They they saw it, I think, more as a your kind of action movie thriller. We kind of said from the start, no, this is actually it's a different type of movie, and the music will reflect that as well. So. I think once it's been shot and then Nevot kind of started and the music editor, Gareth, they started temping the stuff in. I think originally it had like a bit of more of that kind of action thriller music inside and they could see that it's not, it worked on certain scenes, but it, not, it wasn't giving them that extra flavor and something unique that, that we were looking for. And then once I started kind of putting in the sketches and the theme and the, and the kind of sound that started to fit each character and the signature sounds, then it started like, oh, okay, we, got, we can see where you're going with it. Okay, we love it. We did real one to three. And then the comment from the studio, I remember coming in, I think was like, okay, what's going to be with the big action scenes in real six and seven? Like how we going you know, how's that going to sound? Is it going to work with that kind of spaghetti Western retro kind of 60s French feel to it? I said, no, you know, that's, the, that's where we kind of go through, you know, like the full kind of, electronics and that kind of full comic marvel type big bombastic stuff with the choir and the music and, and the orchestra and all that so they said okay can you just skip part of the reels and go straight into the big action scene because they were just were a bit uh, nervous about the whole thing that kind of we went straight into that and then i've done those big scenes 
And then once they've heard it, it's like, yeah, it's all good. We're happy with that. Do what you want to do. So that, yeah, once those done, because they were like super freaked out about delivering those. And I think for me as well, like and I've done loads of action scenes, but not to that size. And they were quite big action scenes, but they wanted, you know, they wanted that kind of big Marvel approach to those scenes, fighting scenes, but yet some, you know, those kind of hybrids action cues. But once they've heard them, they were like, yeah, we're super happy that they just left us to do what we want to do. You know, I had to present the demo of the, of the main theme and stuff. So once they've heard that, they were happy. Then they just heard like the odd cues coming in and out. And then they were like, okay, what's happening with the action? So once that's done, everybody was kind of chilled out about it. Nobody made any comments. The test screening um, that they did, it was just like more of a People, do you like the music? You don't like the music? People said, yeah, everybody said we love the music. So nobody kind of messed anything or anything. Then we had like notes again from the studio saying we need to put more songs into the film. Well, tomorrow's more towards Nevot, actually. So it was like three big, big action scenes. So then they took two of the, the cues from the, from the action scenes and they put uh, one was uh, David Bowie's song and the other one was the Janis Joplin song. And then... Did a, they did a test screening and the audience they loved the Janis Joplin uh, song in the fight scene, but then they preferred the score on the original test screening that we've done before. So David Bowie out, put in back in the score, which is the till the death cue, basically. And that action scene that we, we recorded, that ended up as the um, end credits music, funny enough. But I think it... I think it was a good choice by them to really leave you alone because, and, and you'd mentioned this before, where a lot of people's kind of immediate reaction, I think, when the film came out was thinking the movie was like a female John Wick almost. Yeah. But when you watch it, both the scenes themselves and the music really shows it's a very different type of movie. I mean, yeah, like yeah, broadly, exactly. there are those similarities, but there's yeah. just a very different style and character and feel that comes through that I think would have been completely lost, had it, not completely, but would have been lost a lot and minimized, had it been something much more straightforward, actually more, you know, marvelly, more pure action electronic. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That's And that's kind of like the sense that we got from uh, like the early test screening, um, including one that I was that, that we, we've done in London is and that when it was still kind of temp with lots of kind of other soundtrack cues from different movies and it, it had that kind of more action it felt like it just wasn't you know as you say it would, it would make it another kind of action film but it kind of didn't match what you were getting on screen and there's this there's a story behind it and all the characters and it kind of like it just became like a nice wallpaper that you like to look at, but it's there wasn't no substance. And I think that's where we decided. I mean, that's when the, I think the studio kind of said, what's the approach that you guys wanted to take? And then we said, okay, let's let's show you. Because the initial, like the opening cue is is it has a combination of that kind of John Barry, you know, spy movies from you know those film noir feel to it. And then it kind of goes into that kind of big, big brass electronics and all that kind of stuff. And then then they kind of realize, oh, those worlds can actually coexist. And it actually gives it a nice color, which works well with that retro feel that the film has, but still kind of makes it a bit timeless. So when you watch the film, you know, you know, you're not sure what year it takes place. 
you think it's in the now. You're not sure what city it takes place. And it's a bit of a timeless kind of place, uh, which works great. And I think that's the main thing we wanted to achieve with that. So that's the thing is, is you know, you get always these worries where the studio says we want it to be mainstream. And I think that was the main fear that we were taking it a bit too left field. And they felt like, OK, we might be pushing it a bit too much to one direction and the audience wouldn't get it. But then we said, but, you know, you only heard kind of like a couple of cues. But as the film progresses and more characters coming in, we can establish the themes and the feel to it. You know, there's more. And actually, I think it's from real four that you get like it becomes a bit more of that kind of thriller hybrid score coming in as it kind of started to change and go into that kind of big battle scenes and all the baddies are starting to come in. So, you know, the music almost tells a story. So it starts specifically and then it kind of becomes a bit more. Again, you know, that's part of the sometimes the scare that the studio goes, okay, we've got a bit off the edge here. Well, I hope music like this opens the mind of studios a bit more because I think that I think audiences are actually very open to a little more like more out there music. You take music by like Resdren Ross or Hans Zimmer, where it's not like I wouldn't say it's experimental or anything, but it's still a very different type of sound than you'd hear in you know a lot of other films you hear on the radio or something. You know, it's yeah. very drony, and I think as long as you're not making just pure noise or something that's totally mm. avant garde, yeah. I think audiences now are sophisticated and open enough to have all sorts of music resonate with them. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, melody and harmony is very important. So, you know, there's always room for doing some experimental abstract stuff. And I've done that. And some movies come in that they just want, you know, the one note drone kind of thing and textures. And you tr you still kind of try and be a bit more sophisticated or try and create some sort of a melody or, you know, if, if it's if it's the feel of a sound or certain things. There's, there's certain films where, yeah, that kind of music kind of works in a sense. But I think even, you know, when you listen to uh, Reznor and Ross and, and the stuff they do, it's to, it has a melody. You know, a lot of the stuff has a sort of a, if it's a riff or it's a, some sort of a hook, there is that. And Hans Zimmer today, I think, is more about those kind of riffs and hooks in. And sometimes the, the theme could be some sort of a specific sound like he did in Men of Steel, boom, boom, that kind of, you know, to note thing or and it works great and then you have like the, the the kind of other side which is that kind of john williams um you know school of of kind of proper you know melody that's spread out over loads of bars and music kind of keep changes and and i think for me is is to try and do a combination of both and for nevot as well nevot's like he, he's very big fan of melody and harmony so um it was very important to try and do something that will be very kind of almost like a earworm, you know, that will catch you. It'll be repeated, but not to a point where you go, oh my God, not that theme again, you know, oh my God, it's like, come on. So even with the fifth variation enough, you know, you know, so even when we used it, it was like in so many combination and it was always somehow there in the background because it's like, a, you know, it's very catchy and it's very warm. But again, you know, something that I can write and if you think it's catchy, I don't know if the audience will think it's catchy, you know, like my taste, not necessarily the audience. You don't really write something that, the audience you write something that the director hopefully would love and when i played stuff to them and play the main theme and stuff uh he goes oh yeah I, I can't stop listening to it it's so catchy and stuff we go yeah we got it that's good okay we're happy you know send it to the producer see what they say you know but yeah i mean i think you know i think melody and harmony is very important and i think today 
it's it's like a cycle you know it it may not be going back to maybe the full orchestral kind of scores that you you would listen to for what they did back in you know 60s 70s and then during the 80s it's kind of changed the electronic type again and then it kind of went came back again but it, it's like a combination of things but there's always something interesting happening especially if you have a film that has so much detail and stuff that going you know there's only a limit to what your ear can sustain so when you have something melodic and comfort it's very it's much more easy to the ear to to catch on than you know abstract noises and stuff that coming in you know non-stop i mean i think directors today some of them are they're afraid of music because music could take over if you look at like say the great escape and you listen to the music it's very repetitive you know it's very catchy and you can't escape it. it when you listen to the film mix you know even with the dialogue Elmer knew exactly what he was doing you know it still plays there you still hear the melody but it doesn't take you away from what the characters are saying and stuff, but you still remember the music needs to build. But the, those melodies are still there under, including percussion when they're talking. So it's a combination of to do it right and you can get it to work. Funny enough with Gunpowder, you know, I said to Nevot that we're, we're kind of going to that direction where even when, you know, we have scenes where it's just no action and the characters are talking, we actually have melodies going. It's not just one note or a bit of string playing. It's literally, we have melodies playing under for him it was fine you know it was never about what's going to be the struggle in the mix of bringing down the music because it's interfering you know we knew from the start that we're going to that direction of that kind of school of thought of like we played melody we played catchy and even when there's character talking you know and that's i think the best combination and it can work yeah yeah absolutely and i think it's just that tough balance of not burying it so much but not having it take over you have yeah. to find that little goldilocks zone in between yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing is it's the right orchestration. It's the right kind of instruments when, when you got all those people talking and the right film dubbing mix that can make it all work. Now, I want to I wanted change gears real quick. We're, we're running near the end, but there's something that I, I did want to ask about before we finish up. I do know that one of the things that got you interested in film music and pushed you on the path to becoming a film composer was meeting the German composer Klaus Doldinger. Mm. I think you were like 14 at the time. It was when he yeah. was working on uh, The NeverEnding Story, which yeah. I don't know if everyone knows, but the U.S. version of the film and the score is very different. It has a lot of uh, work by Giorgio Moroder, and I've never, yeah. I've never actually heard Klaus's original version, and I don't think a lot of people here have, which is a shame. But what was that experience like, and what part of that meeting helped further solidify that path for you? I mean, for me, it, it's kind of started, I think, even before when I got like this LP from, from my dad from, uh, was The Big Gun Down by Ennio Morricone. And, and I think that kind of planted the seed, you know, because I used to go when I was like seven, six, seven, eight, I used to go with my dad and watch all these kind of Douglas Fairbanks movie and, you know, Aaron Congold music and all these kind of Pirates movie and Robin Hood and Westerns and all this kind of stuff. And and I started, you know, I started kind of becoming fascinated with music, but I didn't kind of make the connection of like cinema and music. I didn't know that concept of somebody wrote that music for this film, you know. So I got that LP and I used to play it a lot, but I was still doing, you know, I still kind of was interested in music, but more as a, you know, being in a rock band for my teens and all that kind of stuff and electronic music and listening to Howard Jones and 80s music and all that kind of stuff. When we went to one time on a trip, yeah, it was Bavaria Studio. It was right when they were filming 
the never-ending story. So they got us on set. So we saw the, the animatronics and Falcor and all the big, big sets and all that kind of stuff. And I think they were on a break from, from filming. And somehow it kind of got to the point, I think it was in the cafeteria or something. Klaus Dullinger was, I think, I guess maybe it was the, uh, the director. I think it was Wolfgang Peterson, I think, was the director. And they were chatting and I was like, oh, I love music and I, I play synth and I play trombone and I play this and this. And then funny enough, Klaus said, well, you know, we're doing a few cues for this, for the movie that, you know, here that we're filming in this. Why don't you come down to the studio and, you know, we can watch record, a live recording of, of how the magic happened. I went and, you know, I, I still kind of didn't really put the two together, but I felt like, whoa, wow. You know, <laughs> that's like, you know, you hear the orchestra playing and it's, it's those cues. I can't even remember which cue it was, but, but like just hearing the orchestra playing and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think, I think that kind of planted the seed somehow back in the head, like, wow, image, music. But, but then it was just like, you know, being in a rock band and touring and, being a runner and a T-boy in a studio, learning how to operate the desk and reverb and creating your own sound. Because I always said, oh, you know, I'm doing electronic music and I want to create this kind of sound. How do I go about it? So was doing all of that. And then one day I had a call from, uh, from a friend of mine in, in London saying, hey, you're good with synth. I'm doing this, doing this show called The Chancellor with Clive Owen and Jan Hammer, you know, the, the famous Jan Hammer, the composer, so you want to do some synth programming and this, and I'm like, hell, yeah, no, I'm on it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Got the Roland R8 and this, and we do, you know, program some sound and do that. And then I, so I've done that. And then it's, it, it just kind of started, I felt like mm, music and doing, you know, TV shows and films and stuff. Then I just kind of went and did some theater stuff. So I wrote music for theater for a while. And then, then I kind of started doing films. And, and then I think it just like, oh, that feels so natural to me watch the image, get the inspiration from the story and the, you know, and the drama of the written words and what you get. And it's like, oh, that feels so natural. So then, you know, you just start going, doing that and you do this and you do this for free and you do this. And before you know it, and I, I didn't even do, I think, short films. I was just doing, you know, I just got to ask to do features. They were still editing film, you know, 35 mil. So my first films were actually done on 35 mil. And and I remember I met Andy Morricone back in the day and had chat with him and I met Earl Egan and I got a clickbook. So I learned how to do how to do the frame by, with a clickbook. I still remember my first film, which was some Israeli film that I've done. And I still remember how I messed up the scene that my music ended two frames prior to when it needed to end. And, and yeah, you know, record the orchestra, you do what you do and you watch it and you go, well, ends before oh, but yeah director they didn't know nobody noticed but i still remember the scene you know it's like imprinted in my head i, I miscalculated with the, the click frame what i needed with the book and the tempo i met chafer and i met i met a few of you know a few of the old school kind of guys that gave me advice through this site because i never went to like you know i never learned to write for film so anything i i've learned is because i met you know all these amazing composer that in a way i've looked at them you know as mentors including Ennio Morricone for me so and that's kind of like shaped everything to think like okay that's the natural thing but yeah it's all started with getting that small you know LP to listen to and then you know being on in the in first time for a 14 year old kid to be in a studio where you see an orchestra where up until now you know for me it was just listening to classical music growing up and and soaking everything I could but not like watching a real orchestra playing because I've never been in a concert I've never been on any of those kind of things so 
watch an orchestra playing and then you got the big screen in the back and they're you know recording and you got the screen you look at it and you go i just seen that film i saw that those animatronics i just saw them on the stage next door and you see that now playing and you go okay and that's yeah that was that's never forget that that's that's so cool that so the thing the thing is i think there is an album that someone released i'm not sure if it's a bootleg or not but there is an album which is a double-sided which is just has much of more of klaus music of the orchestral stuff i mean it's still the same music i think that they just needed to they wanted to do it a bit more updated so they added, you know, all the kind of Giorgio Moroder stuff that we know and the untitled song. But a lot of that score is there as just an orchestral score. I'll have to look for that because I've yeah. I've seen that movie who knows how many times uh, yeah. since I was probably like five years old. So it would be good it's... to at least hear the original. I mean, those are the things that you kind of cherish. And I think that's kind of give you the experience of watching these people work. And I think that's the best way also to learn is watching all these kind of things being done. And the more you watch and you're kind of like a fly in the wall, but you can you soak so much in how everything works backstage, because that's one of the things I think they don't really teach is how all this mechanism behind works. You know, we spend most of the time in the small room writing stuff out. And then you kind of the biggest enjoyment is when you go to the stage, even though there's a lot of pressure there as well. But it's when you go to the stage and you get the orchestra to play and everything that goes on. So yeah, those moments are the cherished one. That just has to be such a magical moment at that age. It like, was, I couldn't yeah, even yeah. imagine it. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, for me, it was just playing trombone and playing some keyboards and synth. And it's like, you never visualize, wow, an orchestra can play your music. My dad, I'm still alive. Always, every time I, I remember, my dad was a violinist when I went through the Holocaust and that. And every time I, back in the day, I did a score, I used to play it to him and he was, as far, even though he was a violinist and stuff, he always said, you need more brass and more bass. So for me today, it's the, the best things to write for brass. And when I, you know, I said, that kind of brings me, I think, to the never ending story and all these kind of brass writing because Klaus is a saxophone, uh, he plays the saxophone and stuff. So he comes from that kind of background. So for me, it's always like woodwinds and brass is like the main kind of instruments I want to hash out and as much as I can in the session, you know, strings are great, but the brass and the winds, yeah. What a good note to end on. Frank, um, great talk to you. I'm, I'm so glad you could join me. My pleasure. And it was it was great watching the film and listening to your score a few times as well. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely.